Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Kenneth Bornilsen, a social anthropologist based in Oslo and also one of the leaders of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi has a highly visible and extremely complex public profile. He often appears as a firm and decisive defender of the nation, intent on taking India to new global heights. At other times, he may emerge as the humble son of a tea seller who has made it to the top despite all odds, a role model for all those who strive and toil. And as we've discussed in an earlier episode of this podcast, at yet other times, he may appear almost as a Rishiraj, a sagacious Hindu holy man who is also a kingly ruler. What is less known is that Narendra Modi is also a poet with many published collections of poetry to his credit in both Indian languages and in English translations. So what does Modi's poetry reveal about its author, India's current prime minister? What are we to make of a man who is both a hard-nosed Hindu nationalist, but also a self-professed poetic soul? Indeed, what is the relationship between Modi, the poet, and Modi, the politician? To discuss these questions, I'm joined by a group of India researchers with a past or current affiliation to the University of Oslo. And they've all, as a group, carefully studied Modi's poetry. With me are Niladri Chatterjee, Devanandan Harikrishna, Arild Engelsen Root, and Guido Samuelsen. Welcome to the podcast, all of you. So we'll talk more about the details of the poetry soon, but Arild Engelsen Root, first uh, tell us why you, I mean, as an individual, but also you as a group, became interested in Modi's poetry. Right. Uh, thank you for having us. I, I think it's really fascinating that the Prime Minister of India of the world's largest democracy, etc., the world's currently most populous nation, and a very successful political leader, has written poetry. And I think it's interesting because Modi is not just any political leader or any politician. I mean, he is probably the most popular elected political leader in India since Indira Gandhi. And so really he's, and he's got tremendous personal popularity and has fostered a loyalty and enthusiasm amongst, you know, significant groups of voters. That is quite unique. And I think that, you know, there is this perception of Modi also, as, as you mentioned, as a very sort of hard-nosed, resolute leader. But there's also the notion of him as, as somewhat aloof, as somewhat different from everybody. And this is also as accidentally something that comes out in these poems, somewhat away from people. And I think it's really interesting because there is something that we need to understand about his popularity and his charisma. And so we came up with the idea of reading these books. There's actually two collections of poems translated into English. One is called A Journey, and the other one is called Letter to Self. They're partly overlapping. Some of the same poems have been translated in two different versions, in two different books, by two different translators. 
And then there's a last book called Letters to Mother, translations of a uh, sort of a diary entries from 1986 when he was quite young. So one of the interesting things about these publications is that they are actually not very new, right? It's not something that is written while prime minister. It's all been written before he became prime minister, possibly even before he became chief minister, some of them at least before he became chief minister. But the fact that they have been published whilst he is prime minister means that they have been published and they've been published with his permission. He even has a preface in, in all of them. And so they are published with a certain intent. They're published with the intent of showing something about Modi, something about his persona, something about who he is, who he wants to be. These are clearly publications meant to convey a political message. They are forms of political communication. But it's not like poetry is the most obvious way of portraying or communicating for a politician. So it really meant spending a lot of time trying to understand what sort of communication this is. And we've been through very many rounds around this, and and it's all been fascinating. Could we have a sample, Harold? Perhaps a, a taste of prime ministerial poetry? Yes, definitely. So this is from A Journey. It's translated by Ravi Manta, and it's called Hope. Every ray of hope is like a solitary spade, digging out darkness one scoop at a time. Then it goes on for a while. The interesting thing comes a bit further down. It says, the twin arrows of purpose and intellect, once fired, no success as the only target. Unshakable resolve, steadfast righteousness, the twin armors of the bearer of progress, the closed minds of selfishness and envy, fallen by this light, overcome little by little. The warrior for progress nurtures no likes or dislikes, nor any concern for the adulation of crowds. With Lord Rama filling his heart full of forgiveness, he treads the path and becomes the light of hope, that slayer of darkness. Thank you, Harold. Uh, excellent delivery. But why did you choose this particular poem? Well, there's quite a bunch to choose from. Huh? Oh, yes. There's, there's quite a lot of poems. There are, there's actually quite a lot of poems. But I think that it's interesting, this short, uh, we could have taken so many. Uh, but it's interesting because he talks here about, first of all, a lot about determination, uh, the twin arrows that will go, that will sort of shatter darkness. He talks a lot about selfishness and, and, and envy here and in other poems. And these will sort of fall by this light. So that's one thing. There's sort of a darkness and a light dichotomy. He also talks about himself as a warrior. He uses the term warrior quite often. And the warrior is a warrior for good, for light. The warrior is always for good. And he fights against darkness. But there's another theme which is very interesting that we sort of have seen a, a lot in these poems. And that is... The line, he doesn't have any concern for the adulation of crowds. This is really very interesting for a popular elected politician not to, to say that he doesn't care about the adulation of crowds. He doesn't care about admiration. That's a fantastic thing. So what does it actually mean? And of course, there is here Lord Rama filling his heart full of forgiveness. So there's an obvious Hindu theme. And with Lord Rama in his heart, 
he is the slayer of darkness. That's an interesting image. And then, of course, there is a lot of hope and light. So the whole thing is that he is actually a fighter for hope and light. I think that he's putting himself in a position in which he becomes someone who will bring light and hope and progress to India without being specific. There's nothing specific in this. There's a lot about light and, and darkness and cowardice and, and stuff like that throughout this book, but it's never specific, right? So there's, there's no ideology. There's not, it's not a political statement in that sort of more narrow sense of an ideology. And of course, in these few lines and in a lot of these poems that we've sort of read, a lot of the focus is on the individual. So there is Modi, there's the I figure, the warrior, and then there's the crowds, whom he doesn't care much about. But there's no indiv other individual, right? There's no, his mother is not there, his father, his family, his brother, no other politician, no one else. And the message is quite unclear, except that he clearly has a message. He has a mission. He wants to create something in the world. And this mission is given by the gods. But this reference to Lord Rama in the heart, this is perhaps a, a not so subtle way of speaking about the Hindu nation or the, the land with quite clear patriotic, some might even say Hindu nationalist undercurrents. And of course, this is, as we know, in many ways, uh, central to Modi's politics also, which is very much geared towards restoring a kind of Hindu golden age in the present. But Guru Samuelson, there are these poems are not only about the nation or the Hindu nation in sort of abstract terms, but sometimes also very specifically about Modi's relationship to the Hindu nation. Thank you for that uh, question, Kenneth. Well, as Aril touched upon uh, already, the poetry that he writes is true to its poetic ambition in the sense that it's never a political program. It's abstract. It doesn't contain a lot of concretes. So the vision of the nation that is brought forth in the texts that we've read are mainly conjured up through various descriptions, often romantic descriptions. It can be of the natural features of the subcontinent. Frequently, it's mountains, it's rivers, the seas that surrounds it which are also, of course, entities that play important roles in Hindu mythology. Now, these descriptions are often laden with Hindu symbolism. They go a long way in equating the soul or the inner truth of the nation with Hindu traditions and practices. Not very surprising if one is familiar with Modi's ideology and the ideology of the RSS, where he received his training. But one concrete observation, something that we found interesting in our reading was Modi talks a lot about truth. Many of the poems, especially in the early writings and letters to mother, are about his quest for truth and his search for truth. Now, the nation also needs to find and to nurture its own true or higher nature. That becomes quite clear. And he locates the source of this truth most often in these ancient landscapes and the natural features, how the sun is, you know, both a life giver, but also a source of scorching heat. However, he also proclaims in some of the poems that I am the sea or I am the mountain. 
And so we have these seemingly unchanging entities, constants that are unaffected by the developments of the modern world. And he posits them as keepers of a profound and, and unchanging truth. And so he's hailing this Hindu sacred geography, but at the same time, he's using central features of it as metaphors to describe his own nature, his own true nature. And he's inscribing himself into the sacred geography and giving himself a very privileged place in the spiritual core of the nation. So I would say through this poetry, he claims to have privileged access to a form of knowledge or a form of truth that is eternal beyond time and place, but that is also essential to the well-being of the nation. This is interesting, but but as you said, Guru, I mean, such tropes and themes might not surprise us given Modi's ideological training within the RSS. Of course, Hindu nationalism is very much integral to, to his image as a, as a politician. But there are other aspects, too, <clears throat> to this image that move beyond just nationalism. There is the promise of turning India into a modern, prosperous nation with high economic growth, world-leading achievements in industry and not least technology. This year, he's been speaking extremely fondly about so-called technology-driven public welfare and about India's role as an incubator, I think that is the term that's sometimes used, an incubator of, of innovation. When preparing for, for this uh, this episode, I, I went and had a look at the, the recent joint statement from the U.S. and India that came out after Modi's U.S. in, in mid-2023. A quick search and find in that statement will reveal that the word technology appears a full 44 times. It's a long statement, huh? but but still, that is quite uh, that's quite a lot. Technology, being innovative, is clearly an important part of what Modi is also about. Uh, but Niladri Chatterjee, how, how does this figure in his poetry? Thank you, Kenneth, for uh, having us uh, once again. Yes, I mean, it, it's a very interesting uh, point that you have raised. And uh, it's very surprising in a way that technology has actually not been a central topic that we find a place in Modi's poetry. He does offer some reflections on the potential effects of new technologies, especially in the earlier written poetry book, that is uh, Letters to Mother. Although in this book, we find technology to be largely painted in uh, negative shades and is mainly viewed as an alienating force. In a way, this is a bit surprising, as you pointed out, because in his otherwise public image, Mr. Modi has often portrayed himself as a leader who is technologically very sound, up-to-date, and extremely highly in invested in technological development. This notion is integral to crucial components of his public image and social media popularity, and has even earned him the level of being a youth icon. As, for instance, Subir Sinha has argued, new technologies were very important as a symbolic marker and also as a medium to reach the youth and the first-time voters when Mr. Modi transformed his public image from an RSS activist worker to a modern man of the world ahead of the 2014 general election. During this particular campaign, technological optimism was actually central to Mr. Modi's notion of development. The notion was most explicitly articulated in the so-called Gujarat model of development, combining world-class infrastructure with some kind of a business-friendly governance. The new technologies such as the 
projection of 3D holograms in the rally speeches also contributed to creating an image of him as a kind of a miraculous leader, especially in the remote rural areas. During his also in his office, Mr. Modi has continued to pursue technological solutions to the country's developmental challenges, and his government has launched numerous schemes and programs to this end, leading to some scholars to even characterize the BJP's politics under Mr. Modi as technocratic populism. But when we read his poetries, technology is represented as a force that could lead to isolation and a lack of belongingness. This view is probably most prominently voiced in the text, uh, in the poem text, Tender Gaze, from the book Letters to Mother, where Mr. Modi actually asks whether this kind of gadget-created intimacy is an illusion and wonders whether gadgets such as telephone can ever exercise discretion and can even convey the profound intimacy of a person-to-person -person conversation. He also muses whether, and I will try to quote, whether the universe will lose the treasures gifted by nature through our human pursuit of technology. Similarly, as depicted in the poem, and it's called, This is the Only Path from the book Letters to Mother, Mr. Modi expresses this nostalgia for the old times and an almost Gandhian longing for the pleasures of the tender, tranquil existence where contentment is the essence of life. I think at, at this point, I'll, I'll, I'll make a confession, and that is that I've actually also read a few of these poems around the same time as, as you did, um, not too long ago, in fact. Devanandan Hare Krishna, what struck me when looking at this poetry was just how much Modi actually writes about himself. Thank you, Kenneth. That is a very you know, pertinent observation. He does write a lot about himself, although he writes about you know different disparate things seemingly. But as you mentioned, he writes most of all about himself. He first of all, it's you know, as Adel said, his poems are in first person, only a generalized second person or third person are present in them. And also he's expressing his thoughts, experiences, perspectives, qualities, moods, etc. So he is talking about himself mainly and he's, he frames himself in this three-pronged manner in these poems. He, firstly, he is doubtful about his own ability. Secondly, he distances himself from the crowds and other people. And, you know, thereby he sort of portrays simultaneously that he is unique. And also that also he dismisses the crowd's adulation for him. And thirdly, as contradictory as this sounds, he is certain of his larger purpose. He thinks, as, as Adel has already mentioned, he thinks that his larger purpose is divinely ordained. So, you know, inner turmoil and self-doubt fill his poems, especially the earlier ones in Letters from Mother. That's the earlier collection. In the other two collections, he's a bit more self-assured because he has already handled leadership positions by then. In Letters from Mother, he's doubtful if he'll be able to meet his own and his seniors' expectations. He's, he's restless and he's afraid of the future. He pleads with the goddess uh, to whom he's writing these texts to, to clarify the dark clouds in his mind. That's that's his lines. Side by side, there's also a lot of confidence and self-assuredness that exists as you know, contradictory as this looks. He strongly believes he's a chosen one. He thinks that he's a man with a golden destiny to fulfill. He displays a great level of conviction in his leadership capabilities and also you know in his destiny so 
in the three-pronged structure, the, the last part, the relationship with the crowd that Harald has already touched upon, it's it's almost like the crowd is there for him to lead. You know, he's separate from the crowd, he's beyond the crowd. You know, you expect, as Adel said, the leader in a democracy to value popular adulation, but he brushes it away in these poems. He's, he's unique, he holds the masses at a distance. It's sort of a one-way love, you know, the crowd can love him for his acts, but it cannot get his love because he is beyond it. He does not want to get trapped in people's adoration and, you know, lose sight of his spiritual seeking. That is what he frames as his ultimate goal, the spiritual seeking, not power, not material riches. It it creates this framework where doubt is not a weakness, but is a hallmark of a spiritual seeker. So the seeker is detached from the masses and from the world. But at the same time, the seeker is also, as Modi explicitly is, is also involved in the world's concerns. But he overcomes his doubt through prayer. Prayer and, you know, the divine is very visible throughout. He writes a lot about the goddess. He keeps asking her for help. And, you know, this also sort of stamps his status as a spiritual seeker, the spirituality part. And there's this doubt and detachment, therefore coexisting with assuredness and some sort of disdained leadership. I think I, I'd briefly share a fragment, a brief fragment of a poem called Beyond the Image from his Letters to Self-Collection, where you can see the certainty in his own greatness. It goes, Don't search for me in the frame. Hunt for me in earnestness. You will find me dwelling in productive plans of the universe. It's a very interesting piece. You can sense his confidence in his purpose here. He's, you know, he may be doubtful of his ability, but he's comfortable in his belief that the divine has a great, you know, superior plan for him. He's maybe irritated by other people's qualities, other people's falsehoods, but he does not care for, and, and he, you know, does not care for the crowd's uh, adulation or love, but he's happy to lead them because, you know, he's fulfilling his destiny by leading them. So he's, he's caring and distant. So that's the sort of image of himself that the poems portray, I'd say. Um, Ariel Dingson wrote, if I may now in conclusion, just return to you. As we've heard, quite a diverse compilation of poetry, this both in terms of themes, orientations, and so on. How do we make sense of this diversity in his in Modi's poetry? I mean, does it bring us any closer to understanding Modi as a politician, as a man of power? I think it does. I think it's got something to do with what you initially said about how he has a incredibly diverse appeal to different groups. This seems to be a very minor channel of for his political communication, but it's quite significant because it conjures up all sorts of Hindu leadership images. It's clearly throughout this protest, as we've talked about today, that there's a strong connection between himself and the way he feels leadership is and should be, and asceticism. And asceticism leads to personal strength. There's a lot about his being solitary by being alone, being different from the crowd. In a way, it's not the crowd that makes the leader. He is the chosen one. Now, there are a number of relevant Hindu cultural uh, notions, norms, tropes into play here, such as a Hindu leadership style known as karma yogi. So the karma yogis are people who work in the world, but try through work to find enlightenment. There's the, also the term uh, rajashi. Rajashi is the king who is also a rishi, a leader, uh, a seeker. 
Now, these connections to esoteric cultural norms, what do they say about Modi's position or Modi's appeal as a populist? And what does it do to our understanding of what populism is? I think that's a really interesting question. Populism has been, you know, whether right or left, it's very often conceived as being very close to the people. You know, easy mixing, strong language, to be of the people. To some extent, Modi is of the people. I mean, this tea seller thing has been is something that he has been, you know, projecting quite a lot. But in the poetry, he is not of the people. He is distant from the people. He just happens to come from the people. He just happens to come from somewhere, but he is on a on a very different level. So, what does that tell us about you know his populism? I think that's that's really something that we need to to sink our teeth into at some point. And if populism is about style, which it is according to Moffat, then this is a very different style, right? It's not it's not a style that you would recognize in the Philippines with Duterte or in Turkey or with Trump. I mean, it's very different. Now, it's also, of course, connected to Modi as an authoritarian leader because it does place him at a different level from everyone else, right? It's a di- he's a different kind of leader. So he can, he can decide things on behalf of the many and he would be right because he is divinely ordained. Right, there's a strong, there's a strong Indian flavor, of course, to all of this, but it's also universal. It's trying to appropriate a kind of discourse in which you stand very much apart from the ordinary populace. And and the interesting thing I think is that in in so we see here this connection to Hindu symbols, and as we are gearing up towards the election in twenty four, in a few months, six months less. What place is Hindu symbols going to play in this election campaign? We don't really know yet. A lot can happen. Previously, it's been there. It's always been around. He is a Hindu nationalist, but it's not been very prominent. However, this time, I think it's going to be more prominent, I mean, possibly more prominent. He is going to launch the new temple in Ayodhya in less than two months. So that's going to be, you know, the start of Hindu king. I don't know. Let's see. It's very interesting. You've been listening to Arid Lanes and Root, Neeladri Chatterjee, Devanandan Hare Krishna, and Guru Samuelson, who have shed new light indeed on both Narendra Modi, the poet, and Narendra Modi, the politician. My name is Kenneth Bonilson, and thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. <laughs> listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.